So who's starting this thing? <laughs> you start, Brian. Oh, thanks. You're, you're the moderator. All right. <laughs> I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending September 27th. In this episode, we discuss voice activation technology. Most voice processing is done in the cloud. Now, there are a lot of good reasons to not send all of our conversations off to the cloud, but we do it anyway because it's significantly cheaper to do it there in the cloud. But what if there were some unexpected, inexpensive alternative for doing voice processing at the edge? Now there is. Also this week, we'll examine reliability in complex systems, and for that we're going to revisit the Boeing 737 MAX, two of which crashed earlier this year. Recently, the New York Times reported the bigger problem might have been the lack of experience of the pilots involved. We'll discuss that view in light of what we know about the engineering and the oversight of the Boeing jet. And we're also going to revisit autonomous vehicles and driving safety. There's a shift in emphasis from full autonomy to driver assist technologies. Why? Because when it comes to autonomy, there's still an open question. How safe is safe? You switch over to to complete self-driving, fully autonomous. And if you were to use that same ADAS system, and nine times out of 10, it stops. Then one time out of 10, it's gonna hit, and you haven't saved nine lives, you've killed one person. That was Phil Koopman, CTO of Edge Case Research. We'll get back to his comments in a moment. Topping the show this week, we're going to take a look at smart devices and voice input. Voice input is becoming the preferred human-machine interface with Siri and Alexa and Google Assistant and the like getting built into more and more devices, smartphones, cable TV remotes, and more. Voice input is being sent to data centers, and that represents a lot of traffic on the net and a lot of volume in data centers. For voice-enabled products, having the capability means never fully powering down, instead idling in power-consuming anticipation of your next command. Voice input also creates the temptation to violate consumers' privacy. EE Times ran two stories this week. One by Anne-Francoise Pellet, the newest addition to our editorial staff, about a company that has developed a MEMS sensor that will detect voice cues and wake up a sleeping device almost instantaneously. That's with the goal of minimizing power consumption. The other story is by Sally Ward-Foxton about a company called Pico Voice that has devised a way to perform voice processing at the edge easily and inexpensively. Here's international editor Junko Yoshida with Sally. This is something I had been always wondering about. You know, when are we moving this natural language processing in a cloud model to the voice inference on the edge devices? So I guess this is exactly the case, is it? Right, yeah. So if we had an appliance or something, maybe coffee maker or a fridge, if you use that 10 times a day, uh, to process that voice in the cloud at today's rates, that would apparently cost around $15 a year per device. That's quite a lot over the lifetime of the device and for the number of appliances for the appliance, man- appliance manufacturer. Uh, so that would have to be balanced against how many of these expensive coffee capsules you can sell for your coffee maker or whatever. 
Um, the point is, if it's some kind of smart appliance where you've already got a small CPU in there, now you might not need to use the cloud at all. You can use the compute power you've already got in the device. So these, I mean, these cloud companies, Amazon and Google, the cost to them might not be $15 a year since it's their own cloud service that they're, they're using. But yeah, the Amazon business model is set up for them to uh, sell things and they do, they make that money back, right? So cost is a big driver. I could see this. But what other um, motivation do people have to move them from cloud to edge? So privacy is a really, really big one. Uh, there's been a bit of a scandal recently with the Amazon Echo where it turned out there was people, there was human reviewers listening eavesdropping on people's conversations through Alexa. And it's not just them, other manufacturers of smart assistants have been at it as well. Uh, they use humans to transcribe some of the conversations. Basically, they label the data, basically, so they can use that to train the models. Um, there was a backlash against this from unhappy consumers um, with, you know, their doctor's appointments had been recorded and stuff like it was obviously it was not good. So <laughs> user privacy is a big reason not to connect devices to the cloud. Um, there's other things like security, data security. Um, if, if you're doing something like something more like transcription, your end device is doing full transcription. Maybe it's a, in a meeting room, recording meetings and transcribing the minutes. If that's company information, you might not want to send that to the cloud for whatever reason. You might want to do that on the device. There's other reasons where there's you might need really strict latency or a certain level of reliability that you can control. But yeah, cost and privacy are the big reasons really. So uh, let's talk a little bit about this uh, Pico Voice. It's a startup based in Canada, and it claims it has newly developed a machine learning model for speech-to-text transcription, as you say, that runs on a small CPU. So uh, can you give me some specific, how much compute power or memory does Pico Voice model require? Right. So there's three different models. There's a wake word engine, which is detecting a specific phrase that wakes up the rest of the system. Uh, there's a speech to intent engine, which operates kind of in this limited domain that's relevant to the application. And then there's a third model, which does full speech to text transcription. So for the speech to intent, which is where it understands spoken commands in a particular domain, maybe... It's a smart lighting system. You know, it understands things to do with lighting. Maybe you want to turn the lights on and off. It understands those commands, changing the colors. But if you ask it about politics or economics, you know, it doesn't understand <laughs> that, right? Uh, you don't have to have specific phrases other than the wake word, but it only understands things to do with lighting. Um, that model was less than half a megabyte. Um, so that's what you'd be doing on your, your sub $1 microcontroller. Um, for the full, for the speech-to-text transcription, where it understands absolutely everything, uh, 200,000 words, which is like the entirety of the English language. Uh, the demo they had running for that, they were doing it on a Raspberry Pi Zero without an internet connection. So that's more like a $5 kind of system. Uh, the CPU on that uses an ARM 11 core, kind of classic ARM core from years back. So it's, you know, it's nothing fancy, although I don't know the exact size of the model, but yeah, it's... Uh, very uh, resource-constrained environment still. I was just reading uh, your colleague Anne-Francoise Poulet's story this week. Uh, she wrote a story about the piezoelectric uh, MEMS microphone company. It's called Vesper. And she interviewed its CEO, and uh, the CEO was uh, kind of alluding to the fact, alluding to the future, when artificial intelligence will be embedded in the sensor itself. 
So what other devices, whether MCUs or sensors, have you heard that are heading to the similar direction? Yeah, definitely. I mean, artificial intelligence is coming to microcontrollers, and that's a fact. Uh, Google is making a version of TensorFlow called TensorFlow Lite that's specifically for microcontrollers, very small devices, so no doubt about that. Um, in terms of sensor nodes, uh, similar to Pico Voice, there's a company in Seattle called XNOR that, uh, same as Pico Voice, they use the instruction set of the CPU. Um, XNOR, as you might imagine, they use the exclusive NOR instruction, uh, but their models are built for image processing, object detection, face recognition, as well as Pico Voices for speech. So it's not just natural language processing that's coming to microcontrollers, image processing is coming too. Um, XNOR had some really good demos showing image recognition, maybe like person detection on these tiny little boards, something like a sensor node where there was no batteries, it was using energy harvesting. So I could easily imagine something like that in a sensor node somewhere, yeah, definitely. I remember, I'm old enough to remember when a fridge or an elevator started to talk. Uh, probably it's more than a decade ago, you know, um, they are listening to us, but they somehow out of blue, you know, um, blurted out that warn us that when a door of our fridge is ajar or when the elevator door is about to close. Right. Um, I find it, I found it incredibly annoying. Do you think that a coffee maker or washing machine suddenly listening to your command it's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, like with all these new technologies, you've got to use it judiciously. You've got to think carefully about what consumers will accept or even what consumers will enjoy using and what's going to quickly become annoying, especially if it's every appliance in your kitchen suddenly piping up with something and they're all talking at once. I mean, that's going to be annoying. And maybe less annoying if they only speak when spoken to, you know, perhaps... Their speech could be minimized, like maybe they if they understand you, maybe they just make a beep or something or some other kind of response. Um, but yeah, it doesn't have to be a vocal response. But I guess it's up to device manufacturers really to find the right balance there between useful and annoying. You know, it just you, your example is really f interesting, Sally, because you said multiple devices, right? Think about that. You go into the kitchen. It's not just your um, coffee maker your toaster, your fridge, everything is listening to you. What if they all understood what you're saying and uh, started to respond, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, so your your fridge is trying to make you a coffee yeah. and the, uh, the washing machine is trying to make toast. Yeah. Uh, no, they all have to operate in their own little domains, I guess. Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a crazy thought to imagine the future where you're just uh, speaking out loud to all these devices. Absolutely crazy. I have to um, think, how many consumers really want this? You know, but just because technology can do this, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a good idea to add this. I'm not putting any or pouring any cold you know, water to this thing, but uh, I think it might not be a bad idea to, you know, step back a little and think about if there is really such a need. I think what happens is that companies will start building these things anyway and shove them into our throats, I think. And Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so something like a lighting system where you might be sitting down and the light switch is on the other side of the room or something and you want to turn that on and off with voice, but where it's a washing machine or a toaster where you have to physically be at the device anyway to control it. Yeah, how useful is that? I don't know, but... I think device manufacturers, yeah, maybe will, will go a bit 
bit crazy and add add it to try and differentiate the products at first and maybe we'll see some pushback who knows yeah or that the first thing i'm gonna look for is the disable button right <laughs> <laughs> right yeah hopefully you can turn it off yeah <laughs> all right well thank you so much it's always fun to talk to you sally thanks junko have a great day the greatest innovation since sliced bread is the integration of ziploc technology in food packages i love that after that, it's the little bell that dings at you when you get out of your car but forgot to turn off your headlights. So I am totally on board with the idea of our devices communicating with us. But I would like to go on record saying that a headlight indicator bing bing binging at me is as much communication as I want for my inanimate objects. How about you? EE Times recently published a package of stories edited by George Leopold, that look at how reliability can be affected by pressure to get to market. In that package of stories, we've got one on how NASA learned to maintain integrity in engineering operations, despite intense deadline pressure. We've got a story on how the entire hoverboard industry rushed too quickly to market and ended up with unsafe products, but then ended up with safe products after all. And we revisited the fatal crashes of the two Boeing 737 MAX jets. Junko, George, and I got together recently to discuss the issue of reliability versus time to market. When you need to get something to market by a specific date, you've got deadlines. Deadlines are hard to meet. That's not, there's nothing nefarious about that, right? Right. But it, it depends on what you are rolling out. If it is safety critical, I mean, what corners do you cut? And is that allowed? I mean, in the end, you'll pay a big price. I mean, that the, the impetus of this uh, special project was that uh, I think not just us reporters, but I think the whole industry was really taken back by what Boeing did or did not do. I think it was a huge wake-up call. Right. And there, there was a, a, a clear competitive, a compelling competitive reason to move as fast as possible. Uh, there's essentially two major airline companies, Boeing and Airbus, and Airbus seemed like they were ahead, right? Yeah, right. Uh, they uh, Boeing felt pressure to compete with uh, Airbus on the, the, I forget the exact, I think it's the A320-something. And uh, they had to get this thing out. Uh, they were facing... Um, uh, the loss of business from from key customers, so they got into a big hurry, and uh, they, as we've reported and others have reported, they put bigger engines on the aircraft to extend the range. That changed the airframe. The airframe that was corrected with MCAS, this software system that uh, they didn't tell anybody about, and and uh, the FAA didn't make them tell anybody about it. And, and that's how we got to where we are now. But, you know, I, we thought clearly this was an example of, uh, you know, reliability and safety versus time to market and and, and uh, the, the problems that this is causing as systems become more complex. And, you know, another point we made, uh, 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 one of our sources pointed out that there's, there's an equivalence going on here that, uh, is the 737 MAX 8 and 9, is that the same as the previous 737, 
Well, it turns out that it wasn't because the airframe was fundamentally changed. It had different flight characteristics and it had this thing called MCAS that uh, they didn't tell anybody about. I think it's important, this equivalence, you call it, right? Because there's a huge cost involved if your new aircraft, assuming this is not equivalent, you know, the, if the new new aircraft is introduced, you have to go through the uh, the the whole certification process, right? Yeah, that's right. And the point that uh, Missy Cummings from Duke University uh, makes about the equivalence argument is that, you know, besides the seven thirty seven Max, how many other aircraft might have been a, a certified as airworthy by the FAA using? that same equivalence model, that, that this aircraft is fundamentally the same as the previous one. Clearly, the 737 MAX wasn't. So, uh, you know, she makes this point about aircraft, about other uh, consumer products, how many, of them, how many of them get approved or certified, in the case of aircraft, based on equivalence. And uh, it's kind of a, it's a dangerous trend. So the so you've got the the notion of equivalence out there. You get down to the engineering level. Once you've accepted the notion that you are going to try to alter an aircraft rather than rebuild one from scratch or make one that's anew, you have very specific goals. Make sure this this thing flies. There's nothing nefarious about it. The problem was uh, started with the lack of regulation. And then it moved into a lack of internal controls at Boeing so that everybody knew what was going on and could adjust accordingly. So when they start adding bigger engines, when they start adding new sensors, um, part of the problem was was that they weren't talking to each other and stopping and figuring out what does this mean for the aircraft. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, it's the old integration problem. How are you going to make all of this stuff work? And obviously, in order to do that, you're going to have to communicate. And I think it has been documented, for example, that Boeing outsourced the software uh, that went into MCAS, you know, that went into the autopilot. And you're outsourcing it to, to software developers who don't know much about flight controls on aircraft. So, there's there's one fundamental error as well, and uh, you know the other thing that comes to mind was uh, uh, the uh, I think the FAA's Inspector General came out with a report yesterday, basically saying that uh, they didn't do their job, that that the the FAA inspectors did not do their job. So that you know that confirms a lot of what's been reported by us and by others. That brings up the New York Times report from last week. It was a really nicely researched and well-written piece um, that agreed Boeing's controls were off. The FAA should have been on top of it. But this author put uh, the onus on the airlines who hire inexperienced pilots and the inexperienced pilots themselves, their lack of experience, pretty much due to their employer, the way their employers handle their their careers, uh, it's squarely on them. A more experienced pilot, in both cases, in, in the two cases of the two crashes of the of the seven thirty seven Max, um, their inexperience contributed directly to uh, to the tragedies. 
it was well researched. They were talking about where they were getting spare parts from uh, essentially junkyards. Are there counter arguments to that? Well, as as our source Greg Travis points out, the 737 was originally marketed to, to that part of the world, to the lion heirs of the world, and you know they were interested in low cost airfares and get in the case of Indonesia, you know, go from island to island on an air on a 737 instead of a ferry. Um, and the, the times article makes, makes a, an important fundamental point about, you know, lack of training and, uh, absolutely, absolutely no regulation. But I think that the discussion we had earlier, I think still applies here. Uh, I think that uh, the Lion Air thing is a special case. The, the lax operations that Lion Air contributed to the accident directly to it. So, so yeah, it's a, it's another piece of this story. That's for sure. And I would say, notwithstanding, we had the uh, we had uh, Sully Sullenberger um, testified that he had actually uh, gotten into the simulators and flew that Lion Air flight. Uh, flew the other flight. Um, he testified that in the simulators, he could not compensate. He could not get out of those uh, those situations himself. Right, and he knew they were coming, and he knew of the existence of MCAS, and the Lion Air pilots did not know about the existence of MCAS because Boeing didn't tell anybody. So a lack of experience is definitely an indictment and and is a serious thing, but it may not have come into play here. Yeah, and and you know, as we but the point we made is experienced pilots use autopilots grudgingly. And they train and they train and they train to be able to override them because, you know, they want those flight control surfaces are uh, that's that's how you stay in the air and stay alive. So, uh, but you can't do that unless you know about it. And Boeing didn't tell anybody. Yeah, that's the, that's the biggest crime, right? And uh, but also, if you don't have experience, you don't know the right questions to ask. The uh, I'm talking about pilots. Like the, the story that I heard from uh, one of the safety experts is that uh, 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 airline companies like uh, Delta, for example. Uh, Delta is not the only one, but the airlines who have a lot of pilots with the military aviation backgrounds, these guys ask a lot of questions. They actually demanded Delta to pay extra to add another angle of attack sensor. So they knew what to ask, and they pressured airline companies to buy more additional stuff right? For the sake of safety. But if you don't have that experience, you wouldn't ask that. Well, that's Boeing. You've got several, uh, you've got airline safety. You've got, you've got your passenger safety. Uh, anytime something goes wrong with an airline, uh, it's a huge thing. Uh, for Boeing, uh, losing business meant billions of dollars. Junko, you wrote a story about hoverboards, um, they, this is not necessarily, I mean, you don't want hoverboards blowing up, but it, when, when something goes wrong with a hoverboard, it's usually one person on it. It's not good. Um, and the competitive pressure wasn't billions. It was just, it was just getting the product out for the Christmas buying season. 
Exactly. But, you know, some of the fundamental elements that are involved in the hoverboard uh, crisis are actually pretty similar, you know, in a way that uh, did they have, well, first of all, in the case of um, the uh, airlines, I mean, aircraft, you actually do have the safety standard. But if the companies who are making aircraft are lying about certain parts (laughs) of the specification, that's another story. But in case of hoverboard, they didn't have a specification to start with. It was a new industry. They didn't have industry standard. That's number one. Number two is that um, supply chain. You know, you were talking about junkyard parts, right? But here in hoverboards, this was the uh, new market. Um, You know, suddenly a host of uh, new players came to this market, mostly from Asia. And they have this uh, global supply chain. Many of them did not have any experience in building, designing transportation uh, equipment with with the batteries in, right? right they had no idea how, how to and those batteries. So yeah, those batteries yeah. are tricky to handle. They're they're very exactly. they need to be handled well, right? Exactly. Yeah. So you know the, the the actually the hoverboard story has a nice ending because uh, uh, UL used to be uh, known as. Uh, what is the use in the... Uh, Underwriters Laboratory. Exactly, Underwriters. Yeah, thank you. But it's now called UL. But anyway, UL um, stepped in, and uh, they actually wrote a standard for this hoverboard within like a few weeks during the Christmas and New Year's. And that sort of saved the um, the whole industry at a time when a lot of technologists or engineers in Silicon Valley say, oh, forget about standards, you know, IEEE, ISO, these standards take forever to come to an agreement. But UL actually came from sideways and took over the whole thing. Within several weeks, they were able to come up with the standards and kind of save the day. It's a good story. It's interesting because UL can offer safety parameters. The Silicon Valley disdain for the standards process um, also has its its uh, its genesis in in having so many different companies trying to get together and all contributing intellectual property and there's always arguments about which way is the best way to do that and that that does legitimately drag on but by the same token after it do, after it's done the dragging you usually have typically a bulletproof system. But then you you have to, George, we have to come back to the fact that uh, we always believed FAA was a gold standard. So what happened with FAA, right? Yeah, yeah. They uh, they basically let Boeing self-certify. And uh, this, this Inspector General's report uh, that came out yesterday underscores that point. And, uh, y- y- you know, th- these systems have to work. And you've got to have a regulatory regime in place. And I'm hoping that, you know, all these cautionary tales that we're telling are going to raise awareness about, uh, you know, these things, these things have to be bulletproof. And as, you know, as you're reporting on autonomous vehicles, that there have to be standards in place, they have to be enforced. So, you know, in some ways, maybe this will raise awareness and consumers will say, hey, wait a minute, uh, you know, I'm not going to get on this thing until I know it's 
it's been properly certified by somebody who knows what they're doing. I know you'll be doing a lot of reporting on the autonomous vehicle market, so it's gonna, you know, it's gonna play into that as well. It is the third party, right? Third party needs to certify. You know, you don't you don't masquerade the somebody who used to work or who were working at Boeing being part of the panel at FAA to certify the thing, right? That was a shock. Contributors to our special project on reliability versus time to market included George Junko and Martin Rowe, whose article appears on our sister publication, EDN. The links to all the articles in the package are on this podcast's webpage on eetimes.com. For months now, international editor Junko Yoshida has been pursuing a key question about autonomous vehicles. How safe is safe? Experts have discussed numbers with her, 98% safe, 99%, 99.99. Those numbers sound as if they might be high enough to be encouraging, but are they really? What do those numbers actually mean? In terms of world travel, Junko is like our very own Carmen Sandiego. In recent weeks, she has been in Shenzhen, China, in Dallas, Texas, and in Paris. And when we recorded this segment, she was someplace else. I had to ask her, where in the world are you? I am at the AutoSense uh, conference in Brussels, and I happened to uh, attend the lecture given by uh, Professor Phil Goodman at Edge Case Research. He's a CTO at Edge Case Research, and he's a professor at Carnegie Mellon University. And I, you know, it struck me in the very beginning of his lecture, he talked about Back in 1995, we already had an autonomous vehicle that worked 98% of the time. But over the last 25 years, they're actually spending the last 25 years to get the remaining 2% done. So my first question to Phil is that what is the greatest obstacle to achieve automotive safety? in the era of uh, artificial intelligence. Hi, Juko. It's, it's great to be here in person with you. All right, finally. <laughs> finally, we, this yeah. is the first time we've met in person. That's right. So that's great. Yeah. Uh, I think there are a number of different things. So let me start with the social societal issue. Yeah. And that is that people have to trust these vehicles. Right. And that trust has to be built on a solid foundation. Uh, if it's built on hype, inevitably there will be a letdown and the bubble will deflate and people lose confidence. And we already see that kind of dynamic playing out a little bit. Yep. So I think it's time that the industry has to get very serious about being extremely realistic and very transparent about the pros and the cons yeah. and, and what exactly the benefit is so that if there's the occasional speed bump that people won't be disillusioned, they'll say, okay, we were told that would happen. It's what we expected. We're still on track. Right. You know, actually, I'm going to inject myself here that um, during this talk, you talked about difference about the safety approach between ADAS and aut- autonomous car. You mentioned, for example, AEB, 9010 thing. That, that, can you explain that? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And, and this, of course, is somewhat simplified, but it's it's an attempt to get at the fundamental differences. So on a technical basis, the difference is in ADAS, you typically tune for very few false alarms because if you stop a car on a highway in front of a truck, that's a bad outcome. Right. And, and you're willing to take, you're willing to accept the fact that sometimes you miss 
times you should activate and you don't. And the reason is because it's the driver's fault. The driver shouldn't have been almost hitting something anyway. And if nine times out of 10, you can prevent a death, you just save nine lives. Right. Okay. Yeah. Now, and so, so ADAS doesn't have to be perfect because the driver's supposed to be in charge and you're supposed to kick in when the driver makes a mistake. Right. Now, this is a classical ADAS. We're not talking lane keeping. We're talking right. uh, stability yeah. control, emergency braking, anti-lock braking, yeah. things like this. You switch over to, to complete self-driving, fully right. autonomous. And if you, if you were to use that same ADAS system and nine times out of 10, it stops and you, your autonomous people, and this is a bad idea, say, all right, we're not worried about hitting things because we have AEB and that prevents us from ever hitting anything. Then one time out of 10, it's going to hit. And I made up that number. It's just yeah, an example. Yeah, yeah. You know, one time out of 10, it's going to hit. And you haven't saved nine lives. You've killed one person. Okay. And so this is why that's a bad idea. Yeah. And again, I made up the numbers just to prove the point. Right. But but the point is that the ADAS systems are not supposed to be perfect. They're not advertised as perfect. Right. And they do that for a reason. Yeah. Because when you have a human driver in charge, it's a different situation than a fully self-driving car. Right. And so the technology has to change. The tuning has to change. Okay. The sensors have to change. You right. could still use AEB, yeah. but that had better be the backup. It can't be it the primary, be primary reason. Okay, so let's get back to my original question. We were talking about how do you achieve uh, automotive safety in the era of artificial intelligence. So you talked about the social optics, right? I mean, how important it is to not to hype, but build reasonable expectations what, you know, before the public to understand where AV is today. What about the scientific research or, you know, how do you build the trust based on the engineering? Uh, there has to be solid engineering. Yeah. Uh, there has to be more transparency than we're seeing from most of the companies right now. Mm. Uh, and, and ultimately, you can promise all you want, but the, the, the public has to believe there's something there. Right. And, and you can't just, you, the big companies can't just say, trust us, we're smart. Yeah. You know, they, they used to be able to get away with that. Yeah. That ship sort of sailed, right? right. And so you need, um, I, I like to say you need a safety case, a safety argument saying, yeah. here's why you're, we're safe. Here why, here's why you should believe us. And someone credible and independent has checked the homework to make sure we believe it. Right. From a technical basis, yes. in, my, in my view, the hardest part, there are many hard parts, but the hardest part that really keeps me thinking is uh, prediction. So uh -huh. if, you see, if you see someone, a pedestrian on a sidewalk, is going to step off into the middle of the road or not, right? And humans are really good, not perfect, but really good. good. But if you just say, oh, all right, there's an object and it's not moving, we're good to go. You know, that's, that's not what you need, need. okay? Yeah. And if the person's distracted by the cell phone and they're walking towards the curb, what happens next? Well, they step into the road, right? Oh, yeah. And a human knows this. Yeah. And so that's prediction of the human behavior. Now you right. could do simple prediction and say, well, it'll keep doing what it is doing. Yeah. That's, not, the, yeah. that's not how humans work. Right? <laughs> and okay. so if you see a bunch of kids having a shoving match at a bus stop, what happens next? Yeah. You know, one Let's of them spills into the road. Right. So a human driver won't be perfect, but if it's, right. oh, that looks dangerous, I'm slowing down. Yeah. And you would hope that self-driving cars have that degree of understanding of their environment. Yeah. So, but to do prediction, yeah. it's, a, it's a bunch of kids shoving. Well, you have to know their kids, you have to know their shoving. shoving. That's perception. perception. Right. Right. So perception underlies the prediction. Right. And that's right now that the prime application, one of the prime applications for machine learning. Yeah. And that's hard to validate. Yeah. You know, they say, all right, I'm 90%, I'm 99%. It's like, okay, 99% yeah, is good, but what about the 100th kid? Do you <laughs> yeah, see him? Just, yeah. Now, in fairness, they use sensor fusion, they use radar, they use LIDAR sometimes, they sure. use vision, and they try and say, well, one of them will see him, and there's, there's a lot you can bring to bear. Yeah. 
but it's not as simple as our camera always sees them because that, you know, it's 99%. Right. right? And, and I like to say, yeah, that's nice. That's two nines. Okay. Yeah. But you need like eight nines. All right. Oh, okay. So tell them. <laughs> 99.999. Okay, tell me a little bit about this uh, eight, nine things, because I was talking to my editor, uh, Brian Santo, and he was telling me last night, well, why eight nines? In semiconductor world, I think the standard is six nines. Right, okay. Yeah. And and part of it is, by the way, I omitted the the units. Yeah. Okay, oh. per hour versus per mile, whatever. Okay. 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 So, the, but in the semiconductor world, I used to be a chip designer, and five or six nines is what you get. Yeah. That's just all you're gonna, ever going to get, right? Okay. And and there, that's saying basically in a million hours, it's probably going to fail, or 100,000 hours, something like that. And for life-critical applications, that's not good enough. You know, so aircraft, it's nine nines. Oh, okay. Nine Airplane falls out of the sky is nine nines. nines. All right. And they have two oh, engines. Why? Because you can't. The, so the, the engines are more like five nines each oh, engine. Okay. okay? Each engine. Yeah, For okay, in flight yeah. shutdown. But that's why you have two. Right. And you right. can say they're not going to both shut down on the same flight. Uh -huh. And when one goes, you do a failover mission. And self driving cars will be the same. Right. Yeah. But the nine nines, it, it, I don't know exactly what the right number is, yeah. eight nines, nine nines, right? Yeah. But here's just a starting point. Yeah. If in the US it's hundred million miles between fatal accidents, okay? Okay. Yeah. Hundred million miles, yeah. all right? So count up the number of nines. Yeah. You know, the number of zeros, that's eight zeros, right? Eight zero, yeah. So right there, that's eight nines per mile. Okay. Okay. And Good. you're no different than a human driver. Yeah. And that's from electronic failure only but probably there's other sources of failure. Yeah. So you have to add another nine, nine as a budget to say, well, so an aircraft, in fact, this is how they got to nine nines. Yeah. So there's, there's like a hundred things that could fail, right? Exactly. And, and you yeah. do the math, Yeah. so there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so you need eight or nine nines. Yeah. Okay, all right, got it. Now, this is my last question. You talked about perception and prediction. And what you mentioned about prediction can we ever teach machines to predict? I mean, how do you do that? I mean, what technology is available to do that? Right now, they're using machine learning for that, yeah, too. For that. <laughs> and statistically, yeah. you can get pretty good at prediction, but you're back into the 1929, okay. No, it's the same argument. Yeah. Now, now, you can still make arguments. You could say, as long as my prediction is good enough, yeah. and I'm conservative enough that if I mispredict by a little, I still have some safety margin, uh, and I'm and and in my mind, I think what we're going to need to see is these systems are very good at knowing what they don't know, instead okay. of always having an answer. Because a classifier, yeah. a binary classifier that has two bins, yeah, it's always one do. bin or the other. Right. And what you need to say is, I'm not sure. Yeah. If you're not sure, I'm going to go really cautiously, uh, and and that's sort of the way the, out uh, of the of the oh, problem. The, oh, okay. All right, very good. Well, thank you so much for your time, Phil. It was really a pleasure to meet you finally. Thanks, Joko. It's a real pleasure to have a chat with you. EE Times wrote multiple stories about the AutoSense show. You can find them by scrolling through our homepage at eetimes.com. But there are also some handy-dandy links directly to those stories embedded in the transcript of the podcast you're listening to now. And now, come along with me as we take a walk down memory lane. On September 23rd in 1889, Nintendo was founded. The company's original product was playing cards. All these years later, the company is still the largest producers of playing cards in Japan. 
Oh, and somewhere along the line, the company got into game consoles and has been having some success with those too. There are certain sounds that were once omnipresent that have all but disappeared from the world. Have you ever fed punch cards into a computer? When was the last time you heard that sound? The last mechanical cash register I know of is at the Maple Leaf Diner in Portland, Oregon. I haven't seen another in 25 years or more. On September 24th, in 1979, CompuServe initiated the first major commercial online service, the CompuServe Information Service. I don't know this for a fact, but I'm confident that if CompuServe was open for business on September 24th, the first online flame war was waged no later than September 25th. CompuServe was followed by AOL, Prodigy, and the lesser-known Genie. A vestige of CompuServe actually still remains. It exists as a web page. The sound of a dial-up internet connection being established is another one of those audio experiences lost forever. And I gotta say, good riddance to that noise. And that's your weekly briefing for the week ending September 27th. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. You can get to this podcast on the EE Times website through services such as Blueberry, iTunes, and Spotify. The transcript of the podcast can be found on eetimes.com, complete with links to the articles we refer to, along with photos and video. We'll be back next Friday with a new edition of EE Times On Air. I'm Brian Santo.